Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Man, grab a seat, everybody. How are we doing this morning? Good. I woke up this morning to a text from uh, Steve Hickson. If you've joined us in the last year, Steve had my job before I had my job a year ago, and we're still good friends, and we talk and text. And his text said this. He said, hey, Charlie, remember, there's no such thing as a bad short sermon, right? <laughs> On Sunday morning. I said, Steve, it's already written. Maybe next week. <laughs> so we're in John 13. It is week three of our sermon series on greater love. And today we're going to talk about greater love and the choice that presents itself when we love and maybe sometimes don't want to love. And if you've been following along, we've talked through the idea that in John 13, what's happening is Jesus, as the culmination of his relationship with his disciples, is coming together. They've walked and talked and done all the things for three years. They haven't been separated. And Jesus has tried to impart his rhythms and ways on his disciples. And they had this final meal together. And at the beginning of John 13, he says, I have loved you. And it says there, to the end. Or the word there is to completion. And what that means is it's a picture of how God loves us. It means that God says when he loves them and when he loves us, there's nowhere else his love for us can progress because it's already at its fullest form. And that is not how we love people. Hopefully my love progresses with those in my life. But Jesus says God loves in such a way that it's already perfect and full, which means that you can't do anything tomorrow to get God to love you more, which means that we have freedom to live and understand that the love of God covers us. It's a beautiful freedom, that phrase. And so everything he does in John 13 is really indicative of how Jesus loves. It's the culmination of his time with his disciples. And he chooses the last meal, the last intimate moment to explain to them the very nature and nuance of what love looks like as it will be his legacy and the legacy of those that follow him. And so in the first week we talked about how Sometimes it doesn't look like what we think. Jesus says, I love you to the very end. Now I'm going to go somewhere else. And we said that sometimes love feels like it should hold on, but the most loving thing we can do is be a catalyst for change because it's for our betterment. It's not holding on to the present, but soaking into the grace of the present while looking for God's promises tomorrow. And last week we talked about the nature of love and service. And this week we have a more difficult topic. This week we talk about Judas. If you don't know the Bible story, Judas is not the hero, everybody. Judas would be the villain in our story today. And what's really interesting is there's a select group of people. Why you know Judas wasn't a good guy is because we stopped naming our children Judas, right? When you think about it, that's a short list of people that we don't name our kids anymore. You got like Hitler and Bin Laden and Judas, all right? Actually, I read this week, there's a case in Germany in like 2008 where parents named their kids Bin Laden and the German government came in and said, that's not, that's not legal anymore, I'm sorry, right? It's this idea that we reserve the worst people to never be named again so their legacy doesn't carry forward. That's the point of it. That's why my kid, her middle name is Jean, and it's after my grandmother and my aunt that have passed away because names carry legacy. And so we've said their legacy won't continue because they're evil. Judas was, is not the hero of our story. 
But what's amazing to me as I thought about this week is coming off of last week, we saw this moment where Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And if you were here, great. If you weren't, we talked about how big of a deal that was. That it wasn't just he gave the disciples mani-pedis. That, that literally what that meant when he washed the disciples' feet was he took the lowest form of servant and he was the one that should be served. And that it's really awkward and really tension-filled and that Jesus said, I'm going to do this thing that you don't value at all to show you that I will sacrifice for you. It was so looked down upon that most rabbis said that this is an only a job. Washing people's feet is only a job done by slaves. And if you're Jewish slaves, you're already too good to do this job because it's better that any Jew not wash feet because every Jew is better than that. Jesus takes off his towel and starts to wash the feet of the people that called him Master and Lord crazy moment of backwardness. And we said in a culture that oftentimes makes everything about me and everything I cultivate online and in all my stories, it becomes really self-centered quickly. We said that the cure to a selfish gospel is a serving gospel, and that's what greater love looks like. It points to the ultimate serving sacrifice that Jesus did when he died. And so we built up this tension of Jesus serving in a pretty demeaning or humiliating or bottom-rung way. And one thing that stuck with me was that he washed all his disciples' feet, you know? That he washed all his... And what I mean by that is we, we talked through, just as he went from one to the next to the next, how the tension probably mounted and built. But Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him. It says in chapter 11 in our text, last, in verse 11 in our text last week, Jesus knew the one who was going to betray him for this reason. He said, not one of you, not every one of you is clean. When, when he says that, he still washed Judas's feet. And this is what blows me away about what Jesus did, is he knew what Judas was going to do, and he washed his feet anyway. And then one author had a phrase that just stuck with me. We're going to get there in text today, but he's going to look Judas in the eye, and he's going to say, what you're about to do, go and do it quickly. And this author said, Judas betrayed Jesus with clean feet. You know? <laughs> I wonder at any point when Judas was handing Jesus over, his friend, his mentor, his master, his rabbi, if he looked down and thought, what did I do? Judas betrayed Jesus with clean feet. Today we talk about how to love people who hurt us. We talk about how to love people who betray us. We talk about how to love when it's hard. Because Jesus says that's what greater love does. And so as we get into our text this morning... Before we do it, we're going to take some time and pray like we do every week. Two goals at Crossroads on Sunday, and you're getting sick of me saying it. I just don't care. One is we're going to press into the text, and we want to know God and experience God. And we say we want to know God because it shows us each and every time that there's no end to us knowing the depth of God. And what that means is that he's bigger than us and that prescribes to him majesty. It's a good thing. And then we say we want to experience God so we don't just know God to have good Bible trivia scores. As we know God, it leads to us experiencing the love and grace of God when we worship, when we have small groups, when we talk to people, when we read our scriptures by ourselves because we're built that way, mind, will, and emotion. So we're going to take some time and I'm just going to pray for us and ask that you, if you're comfortable, pray silently to yourself and just ask that God that the Holy Spirit that resides in you speaks through the scriptures to begin to change your heart, transform your soul, that you might look more like Jesus. And then I'm going to ask that you pray for me, that what I say might be encouraging and edifying and per the words of Steve Hickson, short. Okay? So let's pray. God, I'm thankful for just the grace you've given us to gather today. 
There's a lot going on in our lives and a lot of reasons why we probably couldn't have made it. So I'm just so thankful that we get to open your word as the community of God and we learn differently when we're in community. So I'm thankful that we get to learn with our friends and family today. Be with us, Spirit. Speak to us and guide us as we know more about God today. If you're comfortable, take a couple of seconds and just ask that the Holy Spirit speak to you through God's word. And you might begin to shape your spirit in the ways that you need to be shaped and molded to look more like Jesus. Then I'd ask that you pray for me. I might do a good job representing God in this text. I might say things that are edifying and encouraging and uplifting and point us to a God who we can never know the end of. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, there you go. John 13, everybody open up. If you're not there yet, we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 18. So Jesus just washed his disciples' feet, and then he goes on to clarify what's going to happen next. And you got to set the tone. These guys thought they were doing a takeover. They just got ushered into Jerusalem, and everybody's expecting a military hostile environment where Jesus takes back what was rightfully Jewish. The throne of David will once again be established, which means we have control and power. Bye-bye, Rome. And so Jesus washes feet, which is not how they thought greatness looks like. And then he says in verse 18, What I'm saying does not refer to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scriptures. The one who eats my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you this now before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe that I am he. There's a phrase in there. The one who eats my bread has turned against me. It's a Hebrew idiom. Literally, it means he's turned his heel against me. It's a common phrase found in the Hebrew culture. David uses it. It comes from Psalm 41.9, actually, when David says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared meals with me, has turned against me. And what's happening in the life of David is his best friend, his closest advisor, revolted against David when David's son wanted to take his throne. That one cuts to the quick, you know? It's what we get into at the very beginning of this text is another, if you will, curveball for the disciples. They didn't think greatness looked like serving when they're talking about greatness. And they, cer- they certainly, certainly don't think that somebody's going to betray the person who's about to take over. One of them. This is the closest group of close friends. And what happens in our text, what you see is Jesus stands up and says, one of you will betray me. And what follows is a little bit of ambiguity because they don't know what's going on. What we get to the nature of, essentially, is how to deal with people who hurt us. Because it's, it's really difficult to love people who hurt us. It's hard to love enemies, but when friends become enemies, there's a deep level, I think, of hatred there. I had a friend of mine in college, his name was Ross. I went to college at a place that was just far away, you know, Chicago, and I grew up here. I went to college at a place that culturally was different than my family. Um, just very, very, very different. And so I looked different and I kind of stood out a little bit and, and I, um, I just didn't know how things worked. And I was very, very, for the first time in my life, lonely in college. I grew up with a twin brother. I was never alone. We shared everything. We shared a room, we shared a cell phone, we shared a car. This is what happened back then, right? And so I was never really alone and I went to college and I was for the first time and I wasn't okay with that. I had a hard time making friends. Um, I... Spent the first two years, four semesters with four different roommates. 
And, and just so I can kind of squish that thought that says, I'm a bad living partner, don't feel badly for Sarah. They left the school, all right? They didn't change rooms because I didn't pick up my clothes. They left the school and they said, we just can't do it here anymore. And I like those guys. That's why we lived together. It seemed like the people that were like me didn't make it at Moody very far. And I get that. So I had a friend named Ross, and at Moody, the Holy Spirit's very active, you know, and sometimes I, I regretfully broke some of the rules at Moody. Sometimes the Holy Spirit was active for you, right? So you get friends that would turn you into the authorities and then tell you later, the Holy Spirit just convicted me for you that I should tell on you. <laughs> and I would, that happened a few times to me, and I would say, mm, miss that one, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate your grace there, you know? <laughs> but I had a friend named Ross, and like I said, I didn't have many of them, and... Um, he was a close friend of mine, and he did that number once or twice, but what really hurt was when I found out that he was telling people that didn't like me that they shouldn't hang out with me because I wasn't a good Christian, because I was a bad influence. It hurt because he knew how much I struggled trying to fit in there. He knew how much I struggled trying to follow Jesus there, and I had some baggage I was trying to work through. It hurt because I feel like my friend became my enemies and made me more. It hurt because... When people that we know that are close to us betray us, all that passionate love we we have for them just turns into a deepening hatred overnight. Jesus said, one of you, one of you really close people is going to betray me. And it's a deep, deep wound. And my question is, how can Jesus today, how can Jesus go on loving somebody like that? And here's the crazy thing that I think about. It's not that Jesus was just betting the odds here. Like, I know Jesus, I bet it's him. Jesus knew. He was God, so he's omniscient, so he knew all things, and he knew what Jesus was about to do. But he didn't just know it in this meal before he washed his feet. Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him before he called him. Think about that. Three years of living with a guy and a bunch of other guys trying to influence the world and bring about a new kingdom. And every day he woke up and looked at Judas and knew, you're the one that's going to lead to my death. Every single day. We see it in the scriptures. We see it in John chapter 6 in a couple places. The first one's in chapter 64. He's saying, but there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus already had known from the beginning those who did not believe and who would betray him. He keeps going in verses 70 and 71. Jesus replied, didn't I choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? He means influenced by the devil. He said, now he said this about Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. For Judas, one of the twelve, was going to betray Jesus. I have the question of why. Why is, if Jesus knew, why is Judas at the meal? Why did Jesus invite him in the first place? I have the question why. If Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, why did he wash his feet? This guy's about to go and try and sell you so that you might die because that was their intent and he knew it. If Judas was going to betray Jesus, why did he call him in the first place? Jesus could have died without being betrayed and it still would have been an atoning sacrifice. Why did Jesus call Judas in the first place? If this man was going to kill me, I'd probably keep my distance. You know? And he didn't. It's always been a big question mark for me of why Jesus decided to do this in the first place. It is literally the salt in the open wound. And what we get to when we look at it and we ask the why question, why did Jesus even call Judas in the first place, is we see how Jesus loves in the first place. Go to Matthew 5 real quick. We're going to spend some time there. Because what Jesus does and what he's doing in John 13 and what he does in Matthew 5 is Jesus is coming into this world and he's 
redefining some things. It's what we talked about in the fall when we talked through the Beatitudes. Jesus says, my family rhythms, the things that my family values are different than your society values. Same with us now. He says, in the Roman culture, your society valued power and it valued honor and it valued wealth and it valued strength, but my kingdom doesn't do that. We value service and we value meekness and we value humility. And so he teaches through how his kingdom has a different set of values than the kingdom of Rome or even the Jewish kingdom at the time. And so in that text, in the Beatitude, he's teaching through um, really just what love and retaliation looks like in Matthew 5. We're going to be verse 38. And he says that this, let's look at verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So what he's telling them He's juxtaposing the way it has been to what he's trying to establish. He's saying, this is what you've heard it said. This is what love looks like. It looks like that you pay back what you get. Love is driven by justice. And that verse, actually, that he's quoting when he says, you heard it says, comes from Leviticus 24. The full text is this. If a man inflicts an injury on his fellow citizen, just as he has done, it must be done to him. I love this part. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he inflicts an injury on another person, that same injury must be inflicted on him. My favorite TV show is a show called The West Wing because it's got amazing writing. And there's a president, his name's Jed Bartlett there. And one of the episodes that stands out to me is, I think it's season one, episode three or four. Um, I'm trying to play, you know, dumb. I can quote the whole thing to you, but I don't want you to think I spend all my time watching TV. Um, and really, the, the, the heart of the episode is it's the first time since this guy's president that somebody kills an American, and he, he feels it. And so he's battling his inner demons because it's a smaller country, and he's saying, what stops me? What stops me from wiping them off the map? And he actually references ancient Rome, and he says, in ancient Rome, if you killed a Roman anywhere, they brought disaster everywhere to your people. You never, ever killed a Roman citizen, no matter where that Roman citizen went, because they had that kind of power. So this president in the show is saying, why shouldn't I wipe him off the map? And the whole episode revolves around the idea of a proportional response. He says, because that's not what we do. And he says, it's tick for tack. So if they kill three people, we knock out a military base. If they bomb this, we bomb that. It's a proportional response. The Old Testament law of love was was motivated by a proportional response. You take an eye, I take an eye. You take a tooth, I take a tooth. You kill an ox, I kill an ox, right? He says, this is how we show love to one another. Jesus came and said, there's a better way. Then you missed it. There's a better way. So he continues in our text in Matthew 5, look at verse 39. But I say to you, don't resist the evildoer, but whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him as well. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your coat also. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go two Give to the one who asks you and do not reject the one who wants to borrow from you. What Jesus is doing in our text there is he's establishing a new law of love, one that will not be governed or motivated by justice, but one that will be fueled by grace. He gives four examples. He gives four examples and he says, this is what it looks like. Let's pick one. He says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two because they all send the same message. And in the first century world, if you were a Roman soldier, you could force anyone you found that wasn't a Roman citizen to carry your stuff. And you had things that you took from people, and you had armor, and you had all the heavy things, and if you didn't want to carry it, you didn't have to. So you'd stop a Jewish guy, the people that you oppress, and you'd say, hey man, I need you to carry my stuff. And it wasn't 
optional. You know that thing when your parents do things like, hey, I think you should clean your room, and you say, I'm going to get to it in a minute, and they're like, that wasn't a question. I don't know where we're misconnecting here. The Roman soldier would say, you're going to carry my stuff a mile, and we're going that way. Okay, now, imagine you're a Jewish guy. You're already mad because they occupy your land that you believe God gave you. And with every passing day, you're reminded that you're not in control. And then they stop you in whatever the middle of the thing that you're doing is, and they say, now you're going to do what I want, and I don't care what you were doing. If you were in the middle of something, if it was a moment you were trying to Instagram because it was precious, right? We're going to stop. And I don't care if you were walking that way, you're going to walk this way a mile with me. Go completely out of your way because I don't care about you at all. My agenda is my good and it's going to be your good whether you want it to or not. Jesus says in that culture, in that context, in that example, if somebody does all of that and they say, walk with me a mile, walk too. That was a big deal. Can you imagine? If you're a Jewish guy and you're walking next to a soldier and the one mile gets up and he's expecting you to absolutely drop everything that you have and say, see you later, I did my duty. Could you imagine what it looks like to keep walking another mile? <laughs> Could you imagine with every step how much exponentially more confused the soldier is asking the question, what are you doing and why? Do you understand what's going on? Do you have some issue or problem? Probably got to the point where he's saying, you need to stop walking, you've done your duty. And you say, I'm gonna keep going with you, Right? It's not about the mile or two. What Jesus is doing is employing people to love in a different way, one that's not motivated by justice, but motivated by grace. And here's the hard part about grace is it doesn't make sense. So with every passing step in this mile, I bet this Jewish or this Roman soldier is thinking, I don't understand what's going on. And the more he thinks about it not making sense, the less sense it makes. It's the nature of grace. The more I study grace and I understand grace, the less I get grace. Because grace is not rational. God's love for us is not rational. It shouldn't have happened, but he does it anyway. It's the definition of grace. So the more that I try and study grace and understand grace, the less I get grace because I can't have a rational pursuit of something that isn't rational and understand those two things. It's like black holes. Have you studied black holes? I used to for a little while. It's like the more we know about black holes, the less we know about black holes, you know? It's this crazy idea that I can try and study something and I feel like I'm going backwards, not forwards. It's grace. And so Jesus says, I'm going to have a new law, and it's not going to be motivated by justice. It's going to be motivated by grace. And so he continues in verse, let's look at verse um, 43. He said, this is what it looks like when it comes to love. You've heard me say, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which just seems natural. (laughs) Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That's a radical concept. You love the people that love you, you hate the people that hate you. It's a radical concept. And Jesus says, I'm going to reinterpret that for you. Love those who love you. Pray for those who hate you. On the cross when Jesus died, they're nailing to the cross and he looks over and he says to these people, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He literally prays for them. He prays for those people that are killing him. He loves those people that are killing him. John Stott has a great quote about it. He said, if the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? He's saying that you're gonna love in a new way and it's motivated by grace. Greater love is fueled by grace, not justice. And that's really difficult for us because I want justice. 
It's really difficult, but I gotta remember that's how God loves us. It's really difficult because it doesn't make sense, and the more I try and understand, the less I get it, but that's how Jesus says to love. He says, pray for those people who you don't like. So my wife and I, every once in a while, it's been like twice in five years, get in places where we're not our favorite people in the world. You know what I'm talking about? And um, a couple times in those moments that, again, are few and far between, I, um, I find myself literally just stepping out and praying for my wife when I don't like her, you know? This last weekend, I was with the kid all day on Friday, and the kid slept like a champ on Thursday with her mom and slept even better on Saturday with her mother-in-law, and I had her on Friday, and she decided this was not a sleeping day, everybody. And so after about two and a half hours of what I can only describe as battle, um, when when I would go in the room and try to put the kid to bed and she'd be fine and she'd fall asleep in my arms and you think that's adorable and then I'd lay her down and she pretended like I hit her, you know? Um, and I'm like, what did I do to you that was so wrong? This went on for hours and hours and hours. I'm not kidding. There was one time when I put the kid down in her crib and she's wailing. I walk outside. I might have punched a wall. I walk outside and I, I started praying for my kid. <laughs> Here's why. Because it's really tough to hate the people you pray for. I mean, it's really tough to hate people you pray for because when you're praying for people, you are for people. When you're praying for their good, you're asking to be a champion of their good in front of God. So Jesus says, when you find yourself hating people, pray for them. Do you know why? Because then you won't anymore. Step one, if there's people that just rub you the wrong way, start praying for them, see what happens, you know? And so Jesus says, we're gonna love in a different way. It's gonna be fueled by grace and not justice and here's why, just in case you need to know it, because I think the why is always important. Why we love like that is because God's love towards us always begins with grace. We see it in Ephesians 2. God being rich in mercy, because of his great love for which he loved us, even though we were dead in our um, offenses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that's what he tells us to do is love like we've been loved. Because when we do that, people see a greater love. He says at the end of this verse, in, in 46 and 47 of chapter 5, he tells them to love like that, and he says, this is why. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you only greet your brothers, what more um, do you do? Even the Gentiles love the same way, don't they? Tax collectors were the bottom rung of society. They stole from their people to get rich, to give it to Rome. Everybody hated tax collectors. And he's saying, if you only love those who you love, you are like tax collectors. That was a slap in the face. Because you know what? Even Hitler had friends. So it's the idea that we're called to a greater level of love than just loving people that we love because that's easy and God's kingdom is difficult. Because when we love like that, when grace is the new motivator, catalyst, fuel for our love, when our love is fueled by grace, people see God. So you have this meal and you have Jesus and you have Judas. And one of my questions is how can Jesus continue to love like this? Why did he invite him to the meal in the first place? Why is he there? Why did Jesus call him three years ago knowing he would do this? Because in that he's showing us what the most gracious love might look like. And he's saying, this is how I want you to love. You have a different litmus to define and fuel and be a catalyst for what your love looks like in the world. It's not motivated by justice. It's motivated by grace because that's how I've loved you. And here's the deal. That's really difficult. Go back to John 13. It's really difficult and we see it being difficult with Jesus, I think sometimes we get to places in Christian culture and we say, just, just forgive, <laughs> just love. Like you flip a switch and it happens. Like we don't have emotions that are tied into it. Like we didn't feel hurt and pain, you know? 
was with a friend of mine and he was going through some counseling with his girlfriend at the time. This is years ago and his best friend actually stole his girlfriend away um, and they're in counseling together and this Christian counselor looks at him and says, just forgive. And he's like, oh, I think he wanted to punch him, you know? <laughs> and while I think that's true, he needed to forgive. Forgiveness takes time because we have emotions. It's incredibly difficult to do. And so in chapter, in chapter 13 in verse 21, we see that with Jesus. He says this, when he'd said these things, Jesus was greatly distressed in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. He goes back to the idea of betrayal and he said, because this is happening, I am incredibly distressed. That word distressed is used two other times in reference to Jesus and it's always used when he's talking about something or somebody dying, which you can argue is the hardest form of pain. He says it in, in John chapter 11 when his friend Lazarus died. He goes up to the people that are mourning. He says, when Jesus saw her weeping, his friend, and the people who had come with her weeping, he was intensely moved in spirit and greatly distressed. He saw the effects of death on his friends and his family, and he got sad. It moved him from the very core of where he was. He says about himself in John 12, right before this, he knew what was happening, and he said, now my soul is greatly distressed. And what should I say? Father, deliver me from this hour, this hour being the time of his persecution and death. He said, no, but for this very reason, I've come to this hour. He says, this idea of me dying is greatly stressing because Judas was his friend, because Judas was somebody he loved for three years, because Judas was somebody he called, because Judas was somebody he invited to the table, because even though Jesus knew it was going to happen, it didn't mean it didn't hurt, because it's painful when our friends become our enemies. And so in our text, what we see is Jesus being stressed out by the situation how do you love somebody who you know isn't going to love you back? And not just isn't going to love you back. How do you love somebody who's actively fighting against your good? So the rest of the text kind of gets into it. Look at verse 22. The disciples began to look at one another, worried and perplexed to know which of them he was talking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, that's John, was at the table to the right of Jesus and in, in the place of honor. So Simon gestured to the disciple and, asked, and he asked him to ask Jesus who it was that he was referring to. Verse 25, then the disciple whom Jesus loved leaned back against Jesus' chest and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread after I've dipped it in the dish. Then he dipped the piece of bread in the dish and gave it to Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. So one thing that's always perplexed me about this passage is I'm reading it and I'm thinking to myself, if Jesus says out loud, the guy who I give this piece of bread to is going to betray me, he dips it in something and he gives it to the guy, what are the other 11 doing, right? Clearly, Peter's ready to, to fight for Jesus, right? He's the guy that's like, do we need to take this outside? He goes Van Gogh on a Roman guard's ear in a couple chapters, so we know that he's up for a fight. Jesus says, I'm about to get betrayed. This dude's going to do it. And they just sit there and they're like, okay, great. What's next? Is there any more bread? You know? And it's this idea that I'm thinking, what is happening here? And why do they not respond? And it's because of what Jesus did. So in the Jewish culture, especially in the first century, at the religious feasts, there was guests of honor. Jesus was the host. And the person whom you gave the bread to, the best piece of bread to, that you dipped in whatever you were dipping it into, they were considered the guest of honor. So all the people at the table think is Jesus is making Judas the guest of honor. 
Jesus not only invites him to the table, calls him in the first place, but in the meal before Judas betrays Jesus, he makes him the guest of honor. I don't know how you love like that, you know? I don't know the depth to that love. How can you have that much grace to look a man in the eye that's about to send you to your death and say, you are my guest of honor here right now? And we do it in our culture today. I used to have dinner parties before kids, and um, when people would come over, I'd cook the things. And sometimes cooking isn't consistent, and sometimes it is. But here's what I do. I pick my favorite person at the dinner party, and I always, always would give the best-looking, best-cooked piece of whatever I was cooking to my favorite person. And I would probably eat the one that looked like it fell on the floor, right? And hopefully that nobody saw it, and I can convince them I'm a better chef than I actually am, you know? So Jesus takes the best piece of bread, dips it, and says, here you go, Judas. And everybody thinks that Judas is the guest of honor. And the second thing you got to understand is that when Jesus says, hey, the person who I give this to is going to betray me, it's not to the whole table. He's whispering it. We've talked about a couple weeks ago at, at this table, they weren't sitting in a row all looking at the camera like the picture we've always seen. They were usually at a round table with pillows on the ground. And they were laying down. That's why foot washing was a big deal. And so the one whom Jesus loved is summoned by Peter because Peter was probably away from Jesus. And he leans back on Jesus' chest, the scripture says, and he whispers to him, who is it? You know? And Jesus whispers back, the one who I give the bread to. And, And so you have this moment where John's the only one that knew and he's seeing Judas as the guest of honor, but he also doesn't understand what's happening because he thought they were taking over. So he doesn't understand what betrayal means there. And so I think he's just really confused at this point. And so they go on with their meal. I think he's confused and he doesn't understand what's happening. I think it's why the people didn't rise up against Judas at this moment and take action. It's why they didn't have a mad brawl and and, and stand up for God. So you have this moment when Jesus not only loves him by calling him and inviting him and making him the guest of honor, but then he looks at Judas and he says, what you're about to do, do it quickly. Look at verse 27. He says, and after Judas took the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And Jesus said, what you're about to do, do it quickly. A quick, quick, quick side note. Um, When it says Judas was, Satan entered Judas, I want to clarify something. Uh, And this is a longer conversation. I used to be afraid as a kid that like one day I'd wake up and I'd get possessed by a demon. You know, I was terrified. Like it would just just happen. And it's maybe because people called me a demon child as a kid. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But... I was, I was terrified. We had a, a guy uh, probably a year and a half ago, and we don't get random people that really stop by the church much. It happens sometimes, but we're in an age of cell phones and texts, so we kind of know who's coming, you know? We, we don't do the random popover anymore. When I was a kid and somebody would ring the doorbell, it'd be like Christmas morning, who's here? I'd run to the door now and somebody rings my doorbell. I think they're a terrible threat and I run inside my bedroom because we don't do surprises well anymore, you know? I'm like, hide the kids, hide the wife, let's go in the bedroom, we're not here. Just a roofer, you know? So, a couple years ago, a year and a half ago, we're at, uh, we're working, and there's a guy that shows up that we'd never met. He didn't go to CBC, I didn't know of him, he didn't know of us. Saw a church stop by, he's a young guy, he's in shape, and it's going to come into play later. Um, and he comes upstairs and he goes, I need to talk to a pastor. And, and somebody on staff was like, okay, are you okay? He's like, I just need to talk to a pastor. Dude looked not well. And so Andrea, one of our people on our staff, said, hey, Charlie, do you have time to talk to this guy? And she tries to take care of me, and she said, are you going to be okay? And she said, do you need Bertha? Bertha's a metal bat that we wrote Bertha on upstairs in the office. (laughs) So if somebody, if you're here and somebody mentions Bertha, run. And I said, no, 
I don't need Bertha, thank you. <laughs> and I go in the conference room, and uh, I said, hey man, what's your name and what's going on? And he tells me his name, and he says, I need you to know that I love Jesus, and I go to church, but I'm, I'm possessed by demons. And I said, tell me about that, you know? And he says, really, at night sometimes I'm possessed by demons. And, and, and just really quickly, why I bring this up is I said, hey, you believe in Jesus, you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells you, where's the demon gonna go? They don't share a room, you know? The idea that you can't be possessed by a demon if you're indwelled by the spirit, that space is taken, what I think is being talked about here, and I'm not commentating on Judas's um, salvific nature or not. What I'm saying is that when it says that Satan entered Judas, what I think it means is that Satan finally, finally had full influence on Judas's actions. And you see it building. In John 12, you see Judas, and there's a story where this woman pours out a bunch of really expensive perfume on Jesus' feet, and Jesus says, stop it, why are you wasting money like that? And it says in parentheticals, he didn't care about the money, he's just greedy. He didn't want to give it to the poor like he said he did. In, in verse two, right above, you start to see Satan's influence working on Judas. It says, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, that he should betray Jesus. What you see slowly in the life of Judas is someone who opened himself up more and more to the influence of not Jesus, but Satan. And I think this is the moment when he finally says, that's what I'm gonna follow. One commentator said, his yielding of selfish impulse opened the way to satanic control. I think this is the moment where Judas had made decision after decision after decision, and he finally decides to fully be influenced by Satan. Because sin convinces us there's no way out. Sin convinces us there's nowhere to run. Sin convinces us that we're trapped. I think in this moment, it's what sin does. It grew in the life of Judas, and he felt like he had no place to go. It's what James 1 says about sin. It says, each of you is tempted when he's lured away and enticed by his desires. Then when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin, and sin is full grown. It gives birth to death. This is what's happening in the life of Judas. And so Jesus looks at him and says, what you do, do quickly. I know you've decided I know you're fully influenced by that. And it's amazing to me that Jesus could say that and not stop him and not say, don't go. He makes him the guest of honor and then he says, what you're gonna do, go do. With this impression that I still love you anyway. I don't know how he does that. There was a, a pastor I follow and I, I like a whole lot in his name. Um, his name is John Perkins and he is an African-American pastor um, that pastored a lot during the civil rights movement. He has... 16 honorary doctorates, he's a big deal, you know? He's a best-selling author, he loves the Lord well. And he has a story one time about people that tried to hurt him a great deal. And he wrote it in his book called With Justice for All. Um, the pastor that I follow that actually uh, told the story the first time, and it's from his book, and I'm gonna read it for you, is a guy named Ben Stewart up in D.C. I listen to him a lot, and I steal his stuff, and I pretend like it's mine. Um, like all good pastors, I'm kidding. But, but he tells this story, and then, so I read the story in some of the book, and in the story, um, Perkins was with his friends one night and he got pulled over by the cops in Mississippi. This is 1970. And they took him to the, the, the police station, the courthouse. And so he describes what happened that night from these people that, that really just wanted to hurt him. He said, moments later, the sheriff came out of the building followed by a dozen highway patrolmen. They searched us, arrested us. And even before they got us to the building, they started beating us. Inside the jailhouse, the nightmare only got worse. At least five deputy sheriffs and seven to 12 highway patrolmen went to work on us. When I got in the jail, 
Sheriff Jonathan Edwards came over to me right away and said, this is the smart one. He said, this is a new ball game. You're in a different county now. And he began to beat me. And from that time on, they continued beating me. I was just beat to the floor and then punched and really beaten. Sheriff Edwards beat me so hard that his shirt tail came out. During the beatings, I tried to cover my head with my arms, but they beat me anyway until I was lying on the floor. Even then, they just kept beating and stomping me, kicking me in the head, in the ribs, and in the groin. I rolled up into a ball to protect myself as best I could, and the beatings just went on. It got worse as the night wore on. One of the officers brought a fork over and said, do you see this? He jammed it up my nose. He crammed it down my throat, and then they beat me on the ground again and stomped me. He said, I remember their faces. This is interesting. He said, I remember their faces. Because if it was me at this point, I'm pretty angry. I'm pretty angry, and I don't love these people that are trying to kill me. And that's what they're trying to do is kill them. He said, I remember their faces so twisted with hate. It was like looking at white-faced demons. For the first time, I saw what hate had done to those people. These policemen were poor. They saw themselves as failures. And the only way they knew how to make a sense of worth Finding a sense of worth was by beating us. Their racism made them feel like something. He says, when I saw that, I couldn't hate back. I could only pity them. I said to God that night, God, if you would let me get out of this jail alive, and I really didn't think I would, maybe I was trying to bargain with God, I really want to preach a gospel that will heal these people too. Well, although the students who watched over me through the night in that jail cell were sure for a while that I was dead or about to die, I came out alive and with a new call, my call to preach the gospel now extended to whites. I love that story because I think it encapsulates what's happening in our text. I think Jesus is about to be betrayed and beaten and flogged and all the other things, and it's about to happen from somebody he should have been able to trust. And in that moment, I'd get really angry. I still don't know at this point how Jesus loved like this. And I think what he does next is show us how it happens. I think Jesus looks at Judas and says, you have been under the influence of Satan. And I don't think in this text, and I think this is what our pastor friend found out. He says, I don't see them as enemies. I see them as captives. There's a big difference there. I don't see them as enemies. I see them as captives. And we so often see people that differ from us or try to hurt us as our enemies. And so if there are enemies, we fight. But Parker, um, the pastor says, and Jesus says, I don't see him as an enemy. I see him as a captive. Because that's what the Bible says sin does. The Bible says that sin makes us captive to sin. It says so in Romans that we're slaves to sin several different times. Jesus says in John 8 that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glorious image of Christ who is the image of God. Essentially, Jesus says that People that are influenced by sin are blind to the goodness of God. And I don't think that Jesus gets mad at blind people for not being able to see. I think he has pity on them. I think he has compassion. I think Jesus not, doesn't see Judas as an enemy, but as a prisoner. I, uh, I am, if you didn't know this, I am deaf in my left ear. That's why I'm so loud. And every once in a while, I will use that to my advantage in my marriage. <clears throat> and so... Yesterday, for example, I always try to leave, or when Sarah leaves, we give each other a kiss, we say goodbye, no matter how we're feeling about each other, and we do our business for the day. I'm leaving in the morning, 
And I was late, and things were kind of hectic, and so I put the kid in the car, and I'm backing out, and I see her standing by the door awkwardly staring at me, and I was like, hey, okay, then see, you can go inside, you know? And um, I didn't have a garage door opener, so I texted her, I don't have a garage door opener, you can shut the door. She said, I was waiting for you to come say goodbye and kiss me, and you didn't. And I said, oh, no. And, and literally, she said, I, I, I told you that I was waiting for you to say goodbye. And I said, I swear to you, I did not hear you. And in that moment, you know what she can't do? Get mad at me for being deaf because it's not my fault, right? That's my parents' fault. They're sin, not mine, okay? Kidding. <laughs> but seriously, in that moment, it's happened several times in my marriage. I'm deaf, and there are things she'll say if she's on the wrong side. I really can't hear. And if you've said things to me and I haven't responded, let's go with that's the reason, all right? <laughs> But, but really, in those moments when you've come up against something that somebody can't help, you don't get mad at them for not fixing what they couldn't help in the first place. You have compassion on them. What happens, what happens, what happens when we see our enemies, not as our enemies, but as captives, is we replace contempt with compassion. How do we love those that it's hard to love? How do we love those that are trying to hurt us? If we see people as Jesus did, as captives instead of enemies, it allows us to love with compassion instead of hate with contempt. Because Jesus said that he came to free the captives. He says his first thing is he's stepping into ministry. I came to set the captives free. And that's exactly what he's trying to do. And he's even trying to do it for Judas who's trying to betray him. Ben Stewart, the guy that I mentioned, said the great goal of the Christian is not to see enemies destroyed, but to see enemies converted into friends. I think if we're going to love people well, if we're going to have a greater love that extends to the people that are trying to hurt us, we have to see the people that are trying to hurt us not as enemies but as captives and trust that God gives us compassion instead of contempt. Because here's the truth, that's exactly, that's exactly, that's exactly how God loved us. It says in Romans 5, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Greater love is a choice to love the captives because in doing so, we show the world Christ came to set us free. So he looks at Judas throughout the whole meal. After he called Judas, after he invited him to dinner, after he made him the guest of honor, after he washed his feet, he looks at Judas and says, what are you gonna do, do quickly? His love for him never failed, even though it was difficult. His love for us never fails, even though sometimes we rebel. He doesn't see us as enemies, he sees us as captives and in that he has compassion for us. It's how he can look at the guy next to him and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because compassion replaces our contempt. Greater love understands that we are all captives at one point. And Jesus came to set us free. Might we love in a way that tells that story? Let me pray for us. Let's worship again. God, I'm thankful for who you are. And I'm thankful. I'm so thankful for how you love us with grace. I need it. I'm thankful how you see us as captives and not enemies. I'm thankful that you see us in a way that inspires compassion and not hatred. I'm thankful that we get to love people that way too. So God, as we think through this week, some people that, man, maybe we really just, we like not to like, I pray that you give us a compassion for them. I pray that you give us an ability to understand that they are captives like we are. And the goal of the gospel is to set the captives free. May we love like that because we understand that's how we're loved. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.